today, uh, we've got uh, a real character speaking for us. And I mean that in the best sense, a character that's going to light up our lives tonight. Uh, Susie got Segure, is that it? Segure. Segure, or an American Segurit. But uh, uh, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Segure, uh, she's an author, chef, fiddler, forager. She's from Madison County, North Carolina, in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains. She, Susie is also a certified culinary professional and specialist of wine with a diploma in gastronomy and taste from the Cordon Bleu and the Université de Reims. <laughs> like Reims. Reims. Okay. Run, run. And Susie is the founder and director of the Seasonal School of Culinary Arts. The school meets four times a year in Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina, and beautiful Asheville, Ithaca, New York, Sonoma, California, and Paris, not Paris, Illinois, but Paris, France. Susie also orchestrates a series of wine dinners known as the Asheville Wine Experience and a series of foraging, cooking, dining events called the Appalachian, Appalachian, right? Culinary Experience. And Susie has authored a quartet of books, Appalachian Appetite, Child of the Woods, Cooking with Truffles, and a chef's book of favorite culinary quotations. Susie is also uh, the chair of a committee of uh, food writers uh, at the organization I belong to, International Associate of Culinary Professionals, and you're chair of the food writers committee, right? Con the food writers section, right? Yes, food, food writers, writers, editors, and uh, publishers. But uh, to say the least, uh, she she writes a mean tale. She's uh, quite a writer. And do you, do you have a copy of your book to hold up? Um, this one, Appalachian yes. Appetite. And then there is <laughs> Cooking with Truffles, A Chef's Guide. And let's see, Child of the Woods, Tales of Growing Up Here in This Particular Area I Call Home. And... <laughs> A chef's book of favorite culinary quotations uh, with all various different chapters, including some fun, humorous quotes to keep you laughing on a cold winter's night. It, it look, look at what she just she, she just served up a buffet, a buffet of cookbooks. So uh, uh, anyway, and I, I've seen Susie at conferences uh, and actually, you've schlepped me around to different locations when we meet in different states and go to different venues. And you've been nice enough to give me rides in places. And this past, uh, this year, I saw Susie, quote, perform at the International Association of Culinary Professionals Conference in Pittsburgh. And she played her fiddle, she sang, and she was talking about food. So she gives a real flavor of everything she's talking about. So I said, you got to speak for our group. And I bought her book. And uh, here she is today from from your home. Again, where's, where, are you, where are you broadcasting from right now? I am way up in the mountains and in between Asheville and the Tennessee border uh, up towards Bristol, Tennessee. So uh, it's about um, the mountains go up to 5,000 plus feet behind me and I'm halfway up that mountainside and it's blowing like crazy outside. So wherever you're dialing in from, I hope that um, uh, that the powers that be uh, let us uh, keep connected to the world for the next hour. Uh, anyway, it's an exciting night. 
and, and if something does blow up, I suggest everybody try to get back in and we'll figure it out. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, we 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 uh, preempted the interruption. So uh, anyway, any interruption. So Susie, if you would take the stage, well, you're already on your stage in your beautiful kitchen. So uh, take it, take it, come on down, as they say on the prices, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott, for that beautiful introduction, and uh, good evening to everybody. It's a pleasure to see, I wish I could say see you, um, to imagine you sitting in your own kitchens or living rooms or wherever is cozy. I hope you have some wonderful beverage beside you. I'm actually drinking water exceptionally, but um, I'm going to fix that as soon as we wrap this up. Uh, I hope you have something wonderful cooking on your stove so that you can uh, get the juices flowing. And I'm going to just start out by doing what I like to do best, which is playing a little bitty fiddle tune. Uh, we're talking about Appalachia here. Appalachia cannot um, be evoked without the music that goes along with it. Uh, so as many of you know, there's a strong tradition of uh, Scotch-Irish fiddle tunes that uh, that came over as well as ballad singing. And uh, of course, the banjo that uh, made its way here from Africa through various uh, uh, detours. And um, I'm going to play a little fiddle tune that gives you a little taste of that kind of lonesome Scotch-Irish uh, uh, heritage. Uh, and there's a little bit of the drone sound in it that evokes the bagpipes. So here we go. And um, let's see, got my <laughs> percussion going down around behind me. This is called Lock Laven Castle. have your feet tapping and dancing. Um, we'll delve into the subject of Appalachia. And I really wish that I could ask you questions at this moment, but you'll have um, your chance in a little bit and uh, feel free to ply me with questions as things go by because I have no idea uh, whether folks have traveled to Appalachia or not. And um, as Scott was saying, <laughs> we had a conversation yesterday about the pronunciation of Appalachia. Uh, of course, Appalachia starts way down below, you know, kind of almost all the way down in Mississippi. It depends on who you ask, how you how it gets defined. I think of it as coming, going all the way from Mississippi to Maine, um, although the um, 
the Appalachian Regional Commission uh, uh, defines it slightly more reduced. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, as my mind travels along, um, there are different pronunciations in the South than in the North. So the Northern uh, folks tend to say Appalachia, Southern folks tend to say Appalachia. And of course, um, both are correct because Appalachia does uh, encompass the North. But if you say Appalachia down here, you're going to get an apple thrown at you. So <laughs> that's how you remember the pronunciation. Um, anyhow, uh, Appalachia is, uh, it's, it's an incredibly rich area with the, with some of the oldest mountains and oldest rivers in the world. Some people do say the oldest mountains um, and then, you know, various research sometimes pops up with some other fact, but uh, the, the mountains are so round and so soft and so welcoming. And right where I live, I am surrounded by them. I'm surrounded by uh, fields and forests and uh, the national forest is behind me and it feels like a cloak around my shoulders all the time. So um, I love that uh, Irving Stone and Edgar Allan Poe uh, preferred Appalachia to America as the name for our continent. Um, and uh, so, well, they didn't win out, but in any case, uh, we got we got the moniker here in the mountains. Um, and the, the foods that are available here are so incredibly rich and numerous because this area, of course, it's like a rainforest. Um, uh, it's at least 70% humidity most of the time, and we have a wonderful growing season. And so... Um, it's it's no wonder that these mountains have attracted people from all over the world. Asheville has become really rich in um, all kinds of influences. Uh, it wasn't quite that way when I was growing up, but uh, uh, it's it's definitely a mecca for people who are looking for food and for music and for dance and for hiking. Um, so. Um, I, I also like to talk about the, the link between food and music because um, I, at one point, I had the good fortune of studying with Hervé Tisse, who's considered the father of molecular gastronomy in France. And um, he, after molecular, molecular gastronomy went in a different direction than he had originally visioned as, as chefs started to refine things and sort of um, create their foams and uh, um, make all kinds of uh, of. Uh, unusual um, dishes that did not necessarily resemble <laughs> the ingredients at the outset, um, he went on another track and started talking about la cuisine note à note or note by note cooking in which he equates a note of music to a flavor and then you combine those notes to form a chord or as you combine those flavors to form a dish and then those chords become a song, the dishes become a, a meal and then the song can become a symphony. Uh, the, uh, kind of, uh, several songs can become a symphony and the dishes can become, the meal can become a banquet. Uh, so there's that kind of parallel. And I, I love that crossing of the senses. Um, um, I, and, and it's 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 kind of impossible to think about music without thinking about food because it's all it's all within the entertaining realm and uh, uh, there are many many of course many songs about food and many fiddle tunes written after various uh, ingredients as well so we'll delve into a song uh, a little bit further down the road um, I wanted to maybe just take a second to. Uh, um, yeah, 
will I do this or not? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pull out a, a, a paragraph or two from Appalachian Appetite, and then we'll um, um, talk about maybe a, a few recipes that are typical in this area. As a child, this, is, this, is, this goes back to my very, very earliest taste memory, so I wanted to share this with you. As a child, I toddled up to the garden, intent on tasting what came from that rich black earth where my father was stirring around with his hoe. He handed me a radish, fresh from the soil, red and round, pulsing with life. I wiped off the crumbs of dirt, pulled off its beard, and took a bold bite into its crisp flesh. The unexpected and sudden burn sent me running back down the narrow path to the kitchen where my mother poured me a mug of cooling water, hauled in a bucket from the spring earlier that morning. The spring was just downhill from a moonshine still, which I was not supposed to know about at my tender age, but I had heard my parents talking in quiet voices at night as the crickets sang their songs and lightning bugs punctuated the sky, and I had seen the clear liquid in ball jars when neighbors came to sing ballads and play fiddle tunes into the evening. Once I picked up a jar and shook it around, and Pugin, the neighbor of the moment, said, Now, honey, you set that down, and don't you be fooling with it, none. I loved the speech of the older neighbors, loved when they brought over a package of salt pork or bacon to add to our daily diet of the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, as the Cherokee called them, for their support of each other in the field. My parents were the first outsiders to move into the hidden valley of Shelton Laurel since the turn of the 1900s, when a small group of Presbyterian missionaries had come in and built a church and a school and a hospital long since in ruins. Um, I'm going to skip over this in, in a moment, but I wanted to I wanted to skip over and tell you a little bit about about my folks. Um, they came here in 1961, as I said, um, because they heard that the best music was here, and they. Um, looked on the map to see where the highest mountains were, and they ended up in this secluded little county, which happened to be the richest uh, um, pocket of ballad singers um, of just about anywhere in the country. And um, I was raised on this farm, the same farm where I am today. And we lived on $200 a year as a family of four. We went to town twice a year and uh, um, spent $3 a year on our electric bill, which was, well, not electric, our lighting bill, which was candles and kerosene for the lamps. And, uh, you know, a few dollars on toilet paper because um, my parents had tried corn shucks and newspapers for a commendable amount of time. But uh, toilet paper won, a, won the day, finally. Um, seeds to plant and coffee and uh, maybe a little bit of cat food. <laughs> uh, although the cats got to drink the milk that came uh, fresh out of the cow down in the down in the stalls. Um, so it was, I, I grew up really knowing what the taste of good food was and how to grow it. Uh, what I didn't know was, and how to, how to put it up for the winter, what I didn't know was, uh, uh, you know, how to turn it into a gorgeous dish. So that came later uh, when I um, took a detour and ended up living in France for 20 years. I, I was playing music for a living and uh, ended up uh, in marrying a French mandolin player and that lasted 20 years. And then, you know, <laughs> he went his way, but um, uh, I, uh, I ended up uh, collecting recipes all around France because I played music in all these remote areas and I would taste, I would, you know, eat everything I could <laughs> and gain 20 pounds every time I went over and uh, run it off when I got back, if I was lucky. Um, but in any case, uh, it, it was, it was a huge 
taste education. And um, I realized that's what I had been missing growing up is, is that, that final step. So um, I, I like to think, I like to tell people uh, we, we, we spend actually our entire lives um, either earning money, educating ourselves so that we can earn money to buy food or educating ourselves so that we can grow it ourselves. But in any case, the end, uh, the end goal in everything that we do in life is to put food on the table for the people that we love. And if, if you have these beautiful ingredients that you you or your neighboring farmers have spent all their lives producing, but you don't uh, have that little finesse of um, turning it into a tasty, beautiful dish, then you've kind of lost, um, you've, you've lost all your work up till that point and things don't make sense. So I like to encourage people to, to, to really, um, uh, if if you don't cook for yourselves, and probably everybody who's listening into, into this uh, program does cook, uh, because uh, that's uh, if that I imagine is your passion as well. Um, but if you don't, um, find yourself a couple of dishes that you really like to prepare and um, make them for yourself, make them for your friends, uh, vary them, uh, throw in an, an extra ingredient. If you don't have one ingredient, substitute something else, uh, play around with it and um, um, see what you can do with that. And if you have children, uh, give them the opportunity to taste lots of different things. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, Fine to keep things simple. In fact, I prefer to keep things simple. One of my, um, a couple of my favorite cookbooks are, are um, three ingredient cookbooks. Um, Roseanne Gold uh, wrote um, several cookbooks with that theme, where she um, made every recipe from just three ingredients plus water and salt, and then she might, you know, combine a couple recipes together. So you have a couple recipes that have three ingredients a piece. But this is a, it's very much what, um, what French chefs do. They tend to distill things down to um, the essence, um, just what you really, really need uh, to, um, to, to make an ingredient sing. So um, rather than throwing in all the herbs in your garden, you would choose one specific herb for one specific dish and really um, taste that herb and really taste the main ingredient. Uh, an exception to that is gumbo, of course, uh, for anybody who might have New Orleans loves um, gumbo. That's where you do throw everything in the pot and the more the merrier in a way, although it's um, um, there are certain ingredients that go better than others. Um, and you want to let those flavors meld together overnight if possible and have leftover gumbo the next day and it's even better. Um, so, yeah, um, a little bit of everything, depending on what your tastes are. Um, uh, I have. Um, I, I will deviate just a moment from Appalachian Appetite to say that this that this particular book, the Truffle uh, Recipe Book, which is 150 uh, recipes from uh, that that really um, make the truffle sing. Meaning they're simple recipes with uh, pasta, rice, potatoes, uh, cream, eggs, uh, the ingredients that have. Just, uh, just enough body, but not too much character so that the truffle can, uh, can, be, can, can really be featured. Um, that's, um, uh, um, I, I, I have made a great effort to simplify things so, so that uh, 
the, again, the truffle is set in the foreground, um, but all of these recipes can be done without truffle as well and enjoyed just as well in your in your family kitchen. So this this is largely French recipes. Um, this, as I said, this is uh, Appalachian recipes specifically, and I have highlighted in, in this book, I've, I've highlighted uh, chefs from up and down the Appalachian chain. So uh, from Mississippi to Maine, uh, quite a few from around Asheville because that's where my roots are. Um, and also have uh, woven in some, some songs with each chapter that, uh, um, that highlight some of the recipes that are um, detailed later. So I think at this point, we need another fiddle tune. And I'm going to invite you, if you have uh, yourselves muted, which you probably do, to sing along because um, it's always good to warm up your vocal cords. So this tune is written by Sai Khan and it is kind of typifies um, the life I live. It's called Wild Rose of the Mountain. And sing along on the chorus. It goes honey from the honeycomb, water from the fountain, sugar from the sugar cane, my wild rose of the mountain. <laughs> Thank you. 
right. I'm seeing some chats going on here, um, and I'm wondering if I should be tuning into this. Scott, um, can you tell me if, uh, uh, how are we doing with timing? Shall we talk a little bit more uh, in the Appalachian vein? Shall we open this up to questions at this point and see what direction we go? Let's let's uh, keep on talking, because um, you can go for at least another 15 minutes in talking, and then then we can open up. I just want to say that I guess your Appalachia's answer to Joan Sutherland. So keep <laughs> singing. Uh, so um, here's a little a little excerpt from uh, Child of the Woods, because just because I can. <laughs> so this is fun. When I was two, I was fascinated by cow pies and devoted hours to turning them into birthday cakes, chocolate <laughs> ones. Dark and steamy were the best. Some of them were still warm. That's how my imaginary best friends, Liffany and Tithy, liked them. Some had developed a white crust with age. Some had developed, um, that's how daddy liked them, sugar-coated. Once in a while, you'd find a place where the cow had walked along and left little cupcakes behind, all scattered in a row. These were for special occasions, and if they were dry enough, could be stowed in mother's cookie crock. Gleefully, I'd break sassafras twigs and candle size, uh, to candle size and make patterns on the smooth brown surfaces. Three candles marked my own special cake, one for each year and one to grow on. A lot of candles went on the next cake, as many as I could fit, somewhere close to 100. Surely one day I would have a cake with as many candles as that, because I would live to be very old and I would then know everything about the woods." They were my kingdom, the woods. So long as I had trees for my roof, I was protected. Everything I adored and coveted, I found under a canopy of leaves, salamanders with slimy spots that slipped right out of your fingers when you tried to confine them between clasped hands for a closer look. And it was never enough just to look. You had to touch them. You didn't know the words temperature and texture, but you knew they were important to your discoveries. Your five senses were always thirsty. Birch twigs, spice bush, sassafras all had to be tasted in turn. Birch turned into a toothbrush if you left it in your mouth long enough, or a miniature broom for fairies. Spice bush had pretty red oblong berries that looked good on birthday cakes, and sassafras was marked by its variety of leaf shapes, three to be found on one bush. My favorite ones looked like mittens. You could find two of equal size, and mother could sew them together, then try to put your hand in without breaking the delicate tissue. Surely that, something that fragile must be finer than silk. After a day of wandering, I would come home with the red Guernsey cow because I loved to see the white foam rise up on the edge of the milking pail with grown-up fingers holding the top of the teat to keep the milk from going back into the bag. Little fingers could coax the snowy jet to stream down and join the, join the rest. And the warm fragrance would rise titillatingly into your nostrils. The next stream would jet into your mouth and you would lick it eagerly from the edge of your round lips. Butter, foam, comfort, ambrosia. Then you'd climb the ladder into the hayloft and drop down fistfuls of food for your horned friend who appreciatively turned it into cud. The next step was to find corn for the chickens and watch them run over each other to get to it. Little downy puff balls of red and yellow and speckled gray and white came trundling after the rest of them, intent on finding out what was so important in Mama Biddy's day, even if the corn was too big for their tiny beaks. You could pick one up and it would peck at your hand and make strange little noises that sounded like broken glass jingling. And just before leaving the barn, you'd check to see if the red Guernsey cow had made any more chocolate cakes that you could offer to mother after supper. 
So um, that's a little bit of fun from there. Um, I had to oh, cut out actually me. some of the juiciest chapters because mm-hmm. I was afraid I might get shot. Because <laughs> can't talk about my neighbors while any anybody from their family is still living. Um, but there's lots of lots of wonderful tales down here. So someday if you come down to visit me, I'll 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 get out the tales that didn't make it there into the book. So um, I also wanted to share a couple of these humorous quotes from here because, uh, again, because I can, um, because we can all use a little bit of humor. So Irma Bombeck, Bombeck said, I come from a family where gravy is considered a beverage. So that goes along well with the Appalachian theme here. And um, the only two things I don't eat for breakfast are lunch and dinner. Uh if it has four legs and it's not a table, eat it. That's a Cantonese saying. Um, let's see. Here we go. Uh, oh, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> that guy. He said, you can tell a lot about a fellow's character by his way of eating jelly beans, of all things. Um, and I know we have some good ones here from uh, some of our Italian friends. Oh, Dolly Parton. My weakness my weaknesses have always been food and men in that order. And Julia Child says, a party without a cake is just a meeting. Um, she's a wonderful woman. Oh, my goodness. The only time to eat diet food, food is while you're waiting for the steak to cook. That's also Julie, Julia. Um, and a balanced diet, says Barbara Johnson, is a cookie in each hand. So... I'll drink to that or eat to that. Anyway, um, maybe we should um, move on a little bit to the truffle story because uh, this yeah. is this is something that absolutely blows my mind. This area of Appalachia, which is known for its it, it's it's been a really really poor. Uh, part of the world uh, monetarily, rich in food and ingredients and in lore, but poor monetarily. And cash crops have been tobacco and tomatoes, but it doesn't really bring in that much cash for the amount of hard work it is. So um, when I was living in France, I came home one day, actually from a, an excursion in Provence to uh, Truffle Land. And uh, I opened up the New York Times and there was a story by Molly O'Neill about a neighbor of mine just over the hill in Tennessee, Tom Michaels is his name, who was growing the Perigord truffle in Tennessee, in East Tennessee. So he's not the only one. Um, it got started by a certain fellow named Franklin Garland in North Carolina, uh, Hillsboro area. And uh there are now a series of truffle farms in Appalachia, um, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Maryland, um, um, beyond also. There, there, there are also native truffles in, on the West Coast uh, of the U.S., um, particularly around in and around Oregon. Um, but um, there, uh, there are a, a few foolhardy souls who have uh, successfully grown the Perigord truffle here with a lot of work, uh, a whole lot of work. And what's exciting now is that uh, we're finding some native truffle species, um, uh, the Appalachian truffle, the Blue Ridge truffle, um, which uh, are just starting to be um, figured out a little bit more as far as cultivation goes on purpose. Um, but the thing is, I mean, you have to have a dog that's trained to send these things out because our noses are not uh, sensitive enough to find them. So I have a couple of talking blues that sum up the growing process and the, the uh, cooking process of troubles, truffles. So I want to share those with you because uh, that way you'll know 
you'll, you'll, you'll get the whole summary in a few minutes. So I'm going to grab a guitar here. So first of all, we're going to start off with the truffle, truffle talking blues, and this is about how to, how to, how to grow up. So um, if you want to grow a truffle, let me tell you where to start. This is really not a journey for the faint of heart. You got to clear your fields and line the soil. Find a nursery man that's loyal. You got to buy your seedlings. They ain't cheap. Space them right, but not too deep. Fence your orchard, water and weed, prune and coddle, protect from heat. Keep the skunks and the deer and the rabbits and the groundhogs and moles from foraging habits. Train a dog to find the prize. If ever that happy day arrives, you gotta watch your ground for signs of burn. Pray that it's at last your turn. Protect from frost, court some chefs. Believe until you've nothing left but faith and hope and endless scuffle. And that, my friends, is how to grow a truffle. So now turning to the more interesting part of um, eating <laughs> again, here's the truffle game. Well, if you want to cook with truffles, let me tell you what to do. Just forget about everything you ever knew. Pare down to the basics. That's the stuff. No need to try to show off all your fancy fluff. Use eggs and potatoes as your foil. Rice and cream and pasta and oil. Don't forget to bring out the bacon fat and butter and grits and stuff like that. Stay clear of spice and pickles and fish and things that detract from the star of the dish. If it's black, eat it gently. If it's white, leave it be. Grate it into taters or serve it up with brie. Think of sorghum and olives, chocolate and shallots. Pair with wines that match and balance. Say a prayer before you join into the truffle game. For once you've had a taste, you'll never be the same. All right. Well, that's enough of that foolishness. So, um, uh, Scott, if you want to open the floor up to questions, I'm uh, I'm game. Sure. Uh, well, I'll start out with some live questions, and then Kathy will go through the chat questions with you. Um, but uh, one one question. Well, could you you have like a, you have three hundred acres? You're sitting on three hundred acres. Could you? talk a little bit about your your land is you, are you growing things well of course you're growing things can you describe what your what your land is like that you own with 300 acres or more so sh sure so it's it's mostly woodland um which is great in that foraging is uh, uh, a possibility right out the back door um so we have a we have a combination of fields and woods it's quite steep uh we have um Lots of streams, um, waterfalls, and uh, uh, in the in the woods in the springtime we find morels and chanterelles. Um, we're really fortunate with that. Got lots of ramps. Uh, for any of you who have tasted ramps, uh, that's a that's a, a taste that never goes away. And um, uh, nettles, uh, stinging nettles, which are delicious when cooked. Um, particularly if you uh, puree them into a soup or put them into a, a, a quiche or, um, you know, you can even serve them just like spinach on your, uh, on your plates to go along with whatever is uh, your main dish. Um, what else? Um, 
milkweed, milkweed pods. At this time of year, the milkweed is going to seed. So I'm thinking about the milkweed when it uh, when it first comes up. You can eat the shoots like asparagus. You can also eat the buds when they're firm, uh, kind of like okra. Um, pokeweed, that's, uh, of course, you have to... Uh, deal with that cautiously. So uh, you want to boil it a couple times and pour off the water and make sure that you're uh, picking uh, young enough uh, specimens so that they don't have much of the oxalic acid and the poison that's, uh, that tends to build up later on in the season. Um, but that's a really delicious dish if it's done right. Um, just I what, I what I want to say is I, I want to invite you all to come down and forage with me because uh, this is something that I do uh, monthly. The last Saturday of every month, I'll take folks out into the woods and we'll bring back whatever is in season at that moment and cook it up in the kitchen on this wood stove if it's not too hot or on the other stove if it is hot and, and then have a multi-course meal paired with wines and um some stories and songs around the fire if it's uh, again if it's winter time or out, outside if it's summertime uh, anyway would love to would, would love to welcome you here so um, I, before you leave uh, maybe maybe Scott you can put uh, type my email address into the chat um, that would um, that so um, anybody who would like to get on my mailing list I'm, I'm glad to let you know when things are happening um, and also, uh, I, I'd love to have anybody join in the summer session of the, of the Seasonal School of Culinary Arts, because that's a whole lot of fun, too, or any of the other adventures throughout the year. Uh, I will let you know that um, the, uh, the next Truffle Festival will be coming up. I organized a Truffle Festival in Asheville in February, and that will be the 10th through the 12th this year of February. And Kathy, I think we, we have on the announcement for Susie's program, and it will be on our website, too. Uh, I think we have her email address, as I recall. I don't have it in front of me right now. Not her email. Oh, her here. Website. I'll type it in. Okay, there we go. So sgsegure at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out to me. I'd be glad to bring you up to date or, or um, if you tune into my Facebook page, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, one to spend enormous amounts of time on all kinds of social media, but I do keep uh, the Facebook page up to date. So if you um, tune into Susie Gott Segure, you'll find um, aha, what's happening. All right. So any questions at this moment? Okay. Just, just one last question from me. Uh, you were speaking about cow pies, and then I finally <laughs> got what you were talking about. I do want to mention, if you're ever going to write a scatological cookbook, uh, my brother once gave my mother um, a gift. It looked like something with coconut on it and brown, and it was wrapped in candy wrappers, big things. And I, was, I said, they look familiar. Uh, and the package, I was a kid, it said road apples. <laughs> so I, I finally figured out that the gift he was giving my mother was came from simulated horses, simulated horse products. But anyway, uh -huh. you might want to include that in your upcoming scatological cookbook. And <laughs> okay. that, I oh, now we're scaring people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, I'll Nobody's going to want to come. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, on that on that strange note, uh, please, Kathy, if you can... Uh, uh, give give uh, Susie the the questions from our wonderful chat people. But we need to talk at the very end about that wood fired stove because that's 
outstanding. So Randy Schwartz, he's from the Ann Arbor Culinary Historians. He, the editor of their newsletter, he asked, which sweeteners are were most prevalent in your childhood? Among them, sorghum syrup, cane sugar, honey, or something else. So we had bees, so we um, we we extracted our own honey. Uh, we and, and we also had uh, uh, sorghum molasses from our neighbors. Uh, we didn't boil it down ourselves, but the neighbors did. And in fact, our our neighbors uh, would. Um, um, uh, they had they had uh, horses and mules to take the uh, to, to um, press the juice out of the cane, and then uh, it was always a social occasion gathering around while the while the syrup boiled down, and, and there were these big skimmers to skim off the foam, and people would sing songs and dance and cut up and maybe drink a little moonshine and. Um, uh, you know, sometimes things got a little bit hairy, too, because sometimes people drank a little too much moonshine <laughs> and the Scotch-Irish tempers tended, tended to flare. Um, but it was always a fun occasion. So, yes, um, sorghum molasses and honey is what uh, we use. OK, so uh, Jackie Ottman from New York, um, she also does a talk on uh New York stockyards. Uh, she goes, Susie, I'm looking forward to attending the Shaker your cooking course at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, in two weeks. She goes, might we be able to learn Appalachian cooking from you there or at another place in time or what have you? Um, I will not be there. I, I don't think my name's on that schedule. Um, uh, but as, as I said, uh, last Saturday of every month from starting in March and through October, including this coming Saturday, I do lead forest foraging sessions and uh, the summer session of the Seasonal School of Culinary Arts, which Coming up this year will be Ash, um, in Asheville, July 9th through 15th. That will be, um, um, there will definitely be a good bit of uh, Appalachian lore woven into that. So uh, Kimberly asks, what is the main staple of Appalachian cooking? The main staple, I would say, is love. I mean, the main staple of cooking in general is love. I mean, that's this. I'll, I'll credit Elvetis with with this. Uh, Elvetis wrote a book with, with that title, "Cooking is Love." Uh, La cuisine c'est l'amour. Um, actually, I think it got translated into a different title, um, "Cooking the Quint Quintessential Art" in English. Um, but he, his uh, what he says about that is that the reason we all love our grandmother's cooking so much is not necessarily because she was the greatest cook in the world, although she might well have been, but it's the love she stirred into her dishes. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely that goes with Appalachian cooking, too. And sometimes, you know, often often the dishes are simple because people were working hard and um, they didn't necessarily have time to pull out all the stops. And they certainly didn't uh, do cordon bleu recipes. You know, they didn't do Julia Child type recipes because uh, they didn't have time for that. Um, but, uh, you know, you put a homegrown tomato on the table, and I know you all have heard the song Homegrown Tomatoes, but, um, and I'm, I'm seeing in the chat box where tomatoes used much in traditional Appalachian cooking. That's the only chat that I can see at the moment. Um, yes, uh, well, I mean, yes, in recent years, in, in any case, recent, recent, I mean, 
uh, honestly, in 1700, that's that that would be a good question. Um, I should I should look that up a little bit, but certainly, certainly, um, in uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a staple of our diet, um, and just yeah, that 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 famous tomato sandwich or just a, a, you go out in the garden with a salt shaker, <laughs> pick your tomatoes, sprinkle it with a little bit of salt, chug it back. Um, definitely one of the loved ingredients. Joints of life. Uh, do you have a source for salt rising bread? For salt rising bread, he said? Yes. Um, well, I, I go by I go on spells of making my own uh, sourdough bread. Anyway, um, I, I live an hour away from the nearest grocery store of any consequence. So, uh, the more the more things I can make, the better. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll make my own bread. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I, we eat a lot of cornbread and biscuits here because those can be whipped up quickly. Um, uh, the, again, that's, that's, the stores are too works. far away to re rely on them for fresh bread. Oh, yeah. When you live on a farm, you have to really be careful. So please share some information on Appalachian gingerbread. Ah, well, if it's made with sorghum molasses, so much the better. <laughs> um, I think there is a gingerbread recipe in Appalachian Appetite. Actually, there's a there's a there's a recipe for molassy cake uh, from my friend uh, Katie Hoffman. She uh, contributed that one, uh, which is really really close to gingerbread. Um, so if anybody feels like picking this up, uh, you can you can uh, look that recipe up, and uh, and uh, that's her I believe her her husband's grandmother's recipe. So when we met in advance, I saw that wood-fired stove behind you and thought it was decorator stove. And it is not. You actually use it. You actually use it. Um, oh, I, I actually, I very much use it, yes. Particularly in the wintertime, those mornings when uh, to take the chill off the house. It's great for cooking pancakes because it's got such a, an even uh, surface and it's great for doing slow stews on a, on a winter's night. It's not the best for um, canning in the summertime when it's oh really, God. really hot out. My mother did that when I was growing up. She spent, uh, she spent her life in the kitchen in the summertime. Of course, we had the windows open but uh, um, yeah we finally got electricity so that we could have freezers so that she could freeze food instead of canning it I I, I, I hope this doesn't cross come across as a rude question but to go where there's no electricity intentionally will your parents sort of like you know back to nature types or <laughs> well, sorry I don't know <laughs> yeah, no, no. They, they, they did what they did without, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't know what the back to the land movement was, but they were some of the pioneers, I guess, in the back to the land movement. And we had a lot of people from the north who came to visit us when I was growing up because they heard about this couple that was, uh, you know, living off the land with no electricity, no running water, no TV, no uh, uh, radio, no, no. Uh, um, uh, outside food coming in. And uh, so they'd come and kind of stay. <laughs> it was a lot of work for my mother. Sometimes we'd put them up in the chicken house because it was the only place we had to, uh, for them to stay. And then my daddy would uh, uh, employ their help in cutting the heads off chickens and uh, putting a chicken in the pot. And so <laughs> some of them stayed around after that. And some of them decided it was time to go back home. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the, that was part of the I guess that's, that sorts the men from the women when you, or whatever, the boys from the girls or whatever, when you ask them to cut the head off a chicken. 
<laughs> That's not a casual request. Um, if there's more questions, I don't see them. Scott, you may want to uh, turn this. Susie, this has been great. I appreciate your time tonight with us. Well, thank you. Uh, and um, <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could sir. Uh, sit you all down at my table right now and uh, pull out a meal because uh, that would be the appropriate way to wrap up a, a session like that. Um, yeah, well, some, some things just don't always happen the way we wish them. Scott, do you <laughs> want to say something? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, when I was looking through your book, Appalachian Appetite, uh, I'm, I'm a writer and uh and I, you know, I go to the conferences and meet people like you, the cookbook authors, the wonderful cookbook authors. You're what you did with this cookbook. It was so different, I think, than most. It's it's like a memoir. It has recipes. It writes about the culture the, there, the food culture. Uh, it it is this did this just and you wove so many different elements into it. It wasn't just a a food memoir, just it was so many things and it's so readable. What did you have any concept to, to for writing it this way? Or is this, is this just came out organically with you? Well, like my life is uh, made of juggling, <laughs> juggling things. So I figure you might as well, uh, if, I, if I'm juggling food and music and uh, uh, ballads and stories, uh, I might as well see if I can weave them into something that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really couldn't leave one of those elements out because it's it, uh, those elements together are, are, are what make Appalachia so special. Um, you know, the, the, the songs, the stories, the um, um, the the big spreads when um, after church or after a gathering after work um, the the, you know, the house raisings with uh, where people bring covered dishes uh, you know we do that people do that the world over but um, um, you really can't get better than uh, than Appalachian cooking when it comes to 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 feeding a feeding a huge crowd. And the photos, did, did you take the photos for your book, too? I took most of them. Um, I, I had, uh, I think I, I had a guest uh, photographer, a local photographer, Steve Tweed, who who um, took a, about a dozen of those. And then the rest came from uh, my lens. Yeah, so you got to use your whole being, your creative being in this book. And it, it gives a nice flavor to the book. So, uh, yeah, it was really impressively written. So, uh Listen, thank you so much for your talk tonight. And uh, I so look forward to seeing you hopefully at the next IACP conference. And you, you light up the room. So thank you so oh, much. Well, you've made my night. <laughs> so Great. thank you. Thank you all for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you somewhere along the road, uh, to sharing a meal, to raising a glass of wine, to uh, um, walking out in the woods and uh, gathering whatever is available. And I hope you have I hope you have some woods nearby where you can where you can wander after this and see what you see, uh, because there's so many hidden surprises. Uh, so um, and watch, watch out for the watch out for the cow pies though when you're walking. <laughs> That's right. Well, they're nice and soft if you slip and you fall. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, and and see you soon. Sooner the better. All right. Good night. Good night to all.